It has been a long while since I talked to you guys last. A few months back, I promised you that for the foreseeable future, I will be releasing two free episodes per year. So here I am to fulfill the first half of that promise. As it turns out, I'll actually be releasing three free episodes this year. Two of them will be narrative ones. Um, These they are listening to being one of them. And one coming out probably in about six months. And the third episode will be a conversation with the master of historical podcasting, the man himself, Mr. Dan Carlin. And this one will be coming rather soon. I believe it's going to be next month. There are also 13 more episodes of History on Fire that I create every year. But those are only available to subscribers to the premium content on the podcast network Luminary. Luminary support has made it possible for me to make some pretty big changes in my life. I've been able to make podcasting my primary job and to focus thousands of hours of work on History on Fire rather than being something that I do in the wee hours of the morning after working all day at a different job. So needless to say, this is helping me a whole lot. If you are in one of the territories covered by Luminary, you can download their free app that has loads of free podcasts you may already listen to. Plus, you can choose to try out their premium ad-free shows that you're not going to find anywhere else. Uh, For example, they have Under the Skin with Russell Brand or On Second Thought with Trevor Noah. These are just a few examples. They have a whole bunch of podcasts there. In case you are interested in a free trial, just go to luminary.link forward slash history. Again, that's luminary.link forward slash history. And uh, you can get to try the network for free. I'm told, by the way, that Luminary will expand to other countries in the future, but I don't really know the timeline yet. But also, just to give you a sense of what I've been working on, I the last few months I did a two-part series about Jigoro Kano, the creator of Judo, and, and more in general about the birth of modern martial arts. I did one episode about the murder of Emmett Till and its impact on the civil rights movement. Uh, I did this one episode that you're about to listen to. I did another one about the philosopher Diogenes, also known as the punk rocker of ancient Greece. And I'm currently in the middle of an epic four-part series about the life of Sittimbul, the story of the Ghost Dance religion, and the Wounded Knee Massacre. Having said all that, I will now shut up, and without further ado, let's go to History on Fire. This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by Luminary Media. Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in the human experience, then you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university professor, a writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide.
let's go set history on fire. This particular episode owes a big debt of gratitude to Alexander von Sternberg. He's the host of a podcast called History Impossible, and on a recent episode, he covered the story of Simo Haya, was the Finnish sniper who was credited with more individual kills than any single soldier in history, at a whopping 542 during the three-month winter war between Finland and the Soviet Union in 1939 and 1940. I listened to that episode, it was great. And then I got to chat with Alexander a little bit, and we decided that Alexander volunteered to help me out with this episode. And wow, he really did help me out a lot. He got a ton of the research done. He gave me some great ideas for where to take this story. So, you know, before we get going, I want to tell Alexander a big, huge thank you for his amazing help. Having said that, let's jump into this tale. Let's start with a question. What roles can women play in war? Do they belong in combat, as quite a few people advocate? Or as uh, Eomer in Lord of the Rings say, capturing the sentiment of plenty of people even in modern times, war is the province of man. This debate has been raging in the United States for the past few decades. The traditional American attitude, and for that matter, the traditional attitude from a whole bunch of countries around the world, is that at best women should play a supportive non-combat role. Only recently this has changed. For a long time that was the, the typical approach. It was considered acceptable, for example, for women to be nurses in hospitals, catering to male soldiers who had left a few liters of blood or pieces of themselves on the battlefield. Now that I think about it, actually, that's how one set of my great-grandparents met during World War I. One of my great-grandfathers had been wounded in World War I and was recovering in a hospital when he fell under the charms of a hot nurse. And from there, they had the great sense to contribute to the genetic pool at the origins of yours truly. So, great choice there. But in any case, I'm just going off with just a tad bit on a tangent, so let's get back to business. Now, life as a war nurse clearly was not a barrel of monkeys. You know, ladies would witness all the horror that battle can inflict on a human body in the forms of terrible wounds and incredible suffering. But that, despite how horrific that experience could be, that was considered okay because they were dealing with the aftermath of battle, not battle itself. Another acceptable alternative, and, and by the way, when I'm talking about traditional and the traditional attitudes and this is what was done, I'm really talking about uh, the focus of our story is gonna be World War II. So that's the time frame. So of course, some of the things I'm gonna be saying right now, of course, do not apply anymore right now in the modern world, but they did up until pretty much the other day. So that's why I'm using this sort of present tense in some of these, because it's, in, in the minds of many people, it still apply. And in 
not just in the minds of many people, but in custom, in actual practice, it, it was the rule, it was the norm, the stuff that I'm describing for very, very, very long. So another acceptable alternative for women was to take over the jobs left vacant by men who had joined the army during wartime. So for example, in the United States during World War II, this led the government to launch a propaganda campaign inviting housewives to do their patriotic duty by taking on work in the factories. At least until the men would come home, at which point women would be invited to kindly go back to the kitchen. And if you really wanted to push the limits of testing the boundaries of gender-appropriate behavior for the 1940s, a few ladies did join the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps, which were eventually called the Women's Army Corps. What that was was a female branch of the military, wanted by General George Marshall. But even the very few jobs in this unit had nothing to do with actual combat. You know, some of the ladies did amazing work. I mean, some of them became pilots flying non-combat missions, taking care of moving cargo and other duties so that their male counterparts would have more time and energy for actual combat missions. In other parts of the world, during World War II, government propaganda aimed at women did not use images of loving nurses standing to the wounds of soldiers or, factor or factory workers holding down the fort while the men were gone. The female face used on countless pamphlets by the Soviet Union belonged to a lady named Lyudmila Pavlichenko, a lady whose specialty consisted in putting bullets into Nazi soldiers and removing such soldiers from the gene pool, an activity for which she had both talent and enthusiasm. And incidentally, it's this very activity that earned her the nickname of Lady Death. Now, before we go any further, I should say something. Since I just mentioned the Soviet Union, since the main character in our story will be a soldier in the Red Army during World War II, it may be worth clearing up something right away. You know, considering how insanely awful is the historical record produced by communism around the world, both in terms of human rights violation and in terms of well, pretty much any other metric, I feel a bit gross even mentioning something positive associated with communism as an ideology. And yet, if you are in the business of striving for accuracy when it comes to history, it is a wise thing not to let your biases get in the way of telling it like it is. So this is my long-winded preamble for saying that when it comes to gender roles, communism supported more equality between men and women than it was common in most countries around the world in the earlier part of the 1900s. So when World War II broke out, women in the Soviet Union joined the military not only to take up jobs as nurses, secretaries and cooks, much like they did in the British and American militaries and pretty much any other military, but also as machine gunners, 
tank troop crew members, combat pilots, and pretty much any other conceivable role fighting in the front lines, including the role that would give Ludmila Pavlichenko worldwide fame, which is that of a sniper. Pavlichenko was hardly unique in this, you know, so many women became frontline snipers in the Red Army that it became clear it was the combat role of choice for most Soviet women. And that's also what many of their male commanders decided, you know, if they had a woman, a woman recruit, they would try to push her toward becoming a sniper. This may strike us as a bit odd, and there actually has been quite a bit of scholarship on this subject for why so many Soviet women became snipers. But the answer is likely pretty simple, you know, as uh, Lyuba Vinogradova writes in the book about female snipers in the Soviet Union during World War II, a book in, uh, called Avenging Angels. I'm going to quote from what she says. Some researchers later claimed that the decision to train women as snipers was made on the basis of serious research proving that women had the potential to be better snipers than men, because they were calmer and more patient. In fact, the main factor that played a role here was the desperate shortage of men. So, you know, it wasn't that women were innately superior or for that matter inferior to men at the job of being snipers, is that they were just running out. They needed any warm body they could toss at the front lines to pull a trigger, they would use it. Now, why was it that the Soviets were facing a shortage of men? Well, in order to fully make sense of the story of Lady Death, we need to take a bit of a detour, delaying us just a bit. You know, I won't take forever, but just a little bit from diving deep into our story for the sake of understanding, at least minimally, the broader context of Soviet participation in World War II. Now, it would be really easy to get over-enthusiastic about this and get lost in the mother of all tangents, tracing the origins of the of Nazi German invasion of the Soviet Union during Operation Barbarossa. And before you know it, I would have took the ears off for five hours, just nerding out about Nazism, communism, World War II, before I actually remember that this episode is about Ludmila Pavlichenko. So you have my word, I'm not gonna do that. But bear with me for just a few minutes, because it's only right to at least quickly set the stage for Lyudmila's entrance. The 20th century has produced its fair share of murderous dictators. You know, I'm not telling you anything revolutionary there. If you look at the history of the 20th century, plenty of really awful human beings who gained the power and used it in in ways that are very fitting with their awful nature. But despite the fact that the field is quite crowded, Joseph Stalin is definitely on a short list for the top spot. You know, of course, giving him a run for his money for the ultimate murderous dictator championship is one of the most recognizable villains of modern history, you know. Of course, Adolf Hitler himself. Now, despite both of them endorsing totalitarian regimes, Nazis and communists absolutely despised each other 
since one identified as extreme right wing while the other identified as extreme left wing. Now, if you have problems with the whole right-left political spectrum as it applies to Nazis and communists, please refer to an episode I did not so long ago with Dan Carlin, in which we discuss this issue at length. In any case, moral of the story is that Nazis and communists were fierce rivals who openly advocated for wiping each other off the face of the earth. But in a classic marriage of convenience, Stalin and Hitler chose to at least temporarily, forget the fact that they hated each other. And they signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact so that they could invade and split Poland from opposite directions in 1939. Uh, quite a few historians consider this moment the actual beginning of World War II in Europe. Had he been half as smart as he was vicious, Stalin should have seen what would happen next, coming from a mile away, particularly considering he was ultra-paranoid by nature and constantly on the lookout for betrayals and conspiracies against him, both real and imagined. You know, after all, already in the 1920s, when he had published his Mein Kampf, Hitler had been fairly clear about his desire to conquer the Soviet Union. Plus, in Hitler's racial imagination, the Russians, being a Slavic people, were inferior to his Aryans and ultimately were just an obstacle. So in light of this, plus taking into account the fact that Hitler didn't seem to didn't seem able to make any promise that he wouldn't break within about 0.3 seconds, Stalin should have expected that Hitler would try to stab him in the back at the first chance which is something that Hitler promptly did in 1941, when he unleashed one of the biggest invasion forces ever assembled in history. Over three million men, by some estimates, coming from most of the European Axis powers, including Germany, Italy, Finland, Slovakia, Croatia, Hungary and Romania. The front lines of Operation Barbarossa, this was the name of the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Germans, the front line stretched nearly 3,000 kilometers, which is about 1,800 miles. Now, 1,800 miles, that's even longer than the United States' vertical width. This is worth bringing up because it gives you an idea of the scale we're talking about here. You know, in the face of such a massive invasion, the Soviet Union leadership decided to throw as many men as was humanly possible at the enemy, while delivering rousing announcements like the one given by Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov, in which he said, Without a declaration of war, German forces fell on our country. The Red Army and the whole nation will wage a victorious patriotic war for our beloved country, for honor, for liberty. Our cause is just. The enemy will be beaten, victory will be ours. Which sounds sweet, except it was way easier said than done, considering that Germany had a well-oiled war machine that had already brought to its knees most of Europe. However, despite losing, and losing heavily, in the early goings of the war, the Soviet Union had at least three weapons on its side. One, 
they had an incredibly large population. And this meant that the Soviet Union could throw millions of people to oppose anyone therein to invade. And incidentally, they could absorb massive losses without being defeated. Two, the Soviet Union, enormous territory. And, you know, the Russian scorched policy, where basically what they would do is they would retreat in the face of an invading army and they would just burn anything of value, forcing the invading armies to, you know, making it impossible for them to live off the land and forcing them to stretch their supply lines horrendously thin, making them progressively more vulnerable as they push further into Russian territory. And the third factor at play, well, of course, we're talking about winter. You know, no one in their right mind, not even Germans who were used to fairly cold winters, nobody wanted to deal with the Russian winter. You know, the ice and snow would disrupt supply lines and they would leave the troops at the front underfed, poorly clothed and equally poorly armed. So these three factors, the same weapons had worked against Napoleon in the 1800s before there was even a Soviet Union when it was still part of the Russian Empire. And they had worked against pretty much anyone else who had the bad idea of trying to invade. Except, of course, for one group of people who were actually quite successful in invading, and, and that was the Mongols. And the reason is simple. You know, when we're talking about the Mongols, you know, if one of the big weapons that... Uh, um, the Russian Empire could uh, could use was winter. For the Mongols, it's like, you call this winter? Come try winter in Mongolia, then tell me about your winter. This is a joke. This is nothing. The Mongols are actually so used to this stuff that they actually waited for winter to come to start their invasion so that all the rivers would be frozen and it would be easy to, easier to cross the river. These guys, but of course, these guys are the exception to the rule. You know, they were able to conquer big chunks of Russian territory because they were used to even much harsher conditions. But that, of course, is not common for pretty much anyone else, not for Napoleon, and as we'll see, not for Hitler now. In any case, the three factors named above, you know, the giant land base, the huge population that the leadership was willing to sacrifice, and brutal winters would pay dividends in the long run. But in the early days of the conflict, German armies conquered giant swaths of territory and unleashed hell on the population of the Soviet Union. In his masterful podcast, Hardcore History, Dan Carlin has dedicated a, a small series to the conflict between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. I recommend that to everyone. You know, this is a weird story. It's a classic bad guy versus bad guy kind of conflict where you don't have a side who are clearly the good guys. Definitely not when it comes to Nazis versus Soviet Union. However, it's useful to remember that while the leadership of Germany and the leadership of the Soviet Union were, they were both definitely awful, the people fighting the war were not all committed ideologues you know, trying to spread Nazism or Communism. I mean, some certainly were, but many of them, they were just some poor bastards who found themselves forced to serve in their national army 
or finding having to defend themselves against a brutal invasion. So plenty of these people were victimized by their own government, on top of having to worry about the other side trying to kill them. And I think that's useful to remember, you know, that not everybody who's wearing a uniform is 100% uh, committed to the cause that their government is pushing them toward, you know. Some people just got caught, actually a lot of people just got caught. When it comes to the Soviet Union in particular, many citizens of the Soviet Union had suffered tremendously under Stalin's policies. You know, right before and leading up to the war, Stalin had been busy proving that when it came to killing his citizens, no one was better than him. His paranoid streak and desire to maintain a tight grip on power led Stalin to launch purges of suspected enemies that led to the imprisonment, torture and death of countless people. And uh, all of the more, the famine in Ukraine created by Soviet policy killing millions. What about that one? You know, and again, I'm not going to go into any of this story because it would take forever to explain them in details. But, you know, the big picture is you can safely say that the many millions in the Soviet Union had suffered tremendously because of Stalin's policies. So Stalin's callousness toward the life of his own citizens extended to his conduct of the war. His attitude was very little different from that of a jihadist leader toward his suicide bombers, you know. Most of his citizens were really just a means to an end. Check this out as an example. Not only was Stalin willing to use his soldiers as expendable pawns, but he also employed barrier troops. Okay, that doesn't sound so bad, so what's the problem? These barrier troops were not setting up a barrier against the enemy invading their country. They were setting up a barrier rifles pointing at the backs of their own troops on the front line. Just in case this front line troops' enthusiasm for getting torn to pieces by the German army would wane. Stalin saw a gun in your back as an excellent argument against anyone considering desertion or even retreat. There's a World War II film called um, Enemy at the Gates, which shows a fictionalized but realistic example of barrier troops in action. Uh, incidentally, Enemy at the Gates is about a famous Soviet sniper uh, who was considered by Soviet propaganda to be the hero of the famous battle of Stalingrad, uh, Stalingrad that turned the tide of the entire war against the Nazis. During the course of that year, he is credited with killing 255 Nazi troops. And like it's depicted in Enemy at the Gates, he's said to have had an epic three-day sniping duel with the head of a German sniping school. But in any case, back to the barrier troops. Eventually, this policy proved to be too much even for Stalin, who decided to discontinue the practice toward the end of the war. But the point remains, you know, Soviet soldiers had to fight to the death whether they wanted to or not. Since the early days of Operation Barbarossa, they had German guns in front of them and their own comrades' guns in their backs. And of course, another motivating factor was the brutality of the Nazi invasion. You know, just to start things off, the Nazis proceeded to murder about half a million Soviet Jews 
as they push inland. Even for the Soviet citizens who were not Jews, things were only marginally better. Hitler's rhetoric had made it clear that in his mind this war against the Soviet Union wasn't just a war of subjugation, but was rather a war of annihilation. He wanted to wipe them out. You know, Nazi Party Chancellor Martin Bormann actually recorded Hitler saying in a memorandum sent out that, I quote, the area must naturally be pacified as quickly as possible. This will happen at best if anyone who just looks funny should be shot. Which, in other words, was a message to his troops to do whatever they wanted to Soviet civilians if it helped conquest. And of course his orders were to outright murder any Soviet official without a trial. The head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, even had propaganda published describing Soviet citizens as subhumans, a term that the Nazis applied to Slavic people, Jews, blacks and Asians. In a piece of propaganda distributed by Himmler's recent settlement office, the Nazis defined their new Russian adversary, as well as, of course, and many others they were planning to crash into dust, in the following way. I'm going to quote from this pamphlet. Just as the night rises against the day, the light and dark are in eternal conflict. So too is the subhuman, the greatest enemy of the dominant species on earth, mankind. The subhuman is a biological creature crafted by nature which has hands, legs, eyes and mouth, and even the semblance of a brain. Nevertheless, this terrible creature is only a partial human being. Although it has features similar to a human, the subhuman is lower on the spiritual and psychological scale than any animal. Inside of this creature lies wild and unrestrained passions, an incessant need to destroy filled with the most primitive desires, chaos and cold-hearted villainy. A subhuman and nothing more. This is a classic thing that people have done since time immemorial, you know, dehumanize everyone in a rival nation for the sake of making it easier to kill them without any moral qualms. This kind of stuff is what helped German soldiers to line up Jews, Soviet officials and sometimes other random civilians at the edge of pits and put a bullet in their heads or also to do things such as kill everyone in an entire village if they suspected that someone in there supported the resistance against the invasion. After all, if they were all subhumans, what did it matter if you had to kill entire families to discourage rebellions? Dehumanizing an entire population also gave a free license to the troops to rape at will. If you want to feel particularly negative about human nature, Taking a look at the widespread tendency throughout history for soldiers of an invading army to rape civilians will probably do wonders and have you pray for a giant asteroid to show up already. In war after war after war, pretty much all over the globe, seemingly normal men have gone on rape sprees against the women of the countries they invade. 
Alexander von Sternberg, who, as I mentioned in the intro, provided incredible help in preparing this episode, covered the topic of rape during the civil war on his podcast. That's, you know, one particular example, but cultures throughout history have basically sanctioned wartime rape as a normal part of being a soldier. So, yeah. In the latter part of World War II, Red Army soldiers will become infamous for their gang rapes of German women. Nazi soldiers had done very similar things to Soviet women during their invasion, with entire units going on raping rampages. So some people would see this as just simple revenge. But of course it's not. You know, Germ a German woman getting raped by some drunk Russians was not the one responsible for raping Russian women. You know, again, it goes back to this idea of collective punishment that, you know, any German would be equally guilty for the crimes of another German or any Russian is equally guilty for the crimes of another Russian. Many people throughout history have seem to have no problem with this idea. Of course, it looks barbaric to anyone who values individuality over belonging to a particular nation. The Soviet government, of course, used the rapes and other atrocities against their own civilians, you know, the ones committed by the Nazis, as a propaganda weapon to motivate their troops to fight to the death, you know, just in case they needed the further convincing after you put a gun to their backs. So women in the Soviet Union were definitely a target for Nazi soldiers and had many reasons to fear them. But as the Nazi soldiers would find out, things could get unpleasant for them when the roles were reversed. In some cases, it was their turn to be the target and to fear Soviet ladies. Among the many women would fight tooth and nail and send quite a few German soldiers and their allies to a premature death, one stood out among the rest. You know, Nazi soldiers would end up knowing her by name and would grow to fear her. And they had good reasons to fear her, since it was by killing 309 of them, including 36 rival snipers, that she would become the most deadly female sniper in history. Legends about her would grow both among her own comrades as well as among the terrified Nazi soldiers who heard rumors about this vengeful female demon who seemed to have made it her personal mission to make them pay for any outrage anyone wearing their same uniform had ever committed. Some told stories about how a witch in some village near Odessa had cast a spell deflecting enemy bullets away from her. Others swore that she was followed by the lord of the forest himself, a wood spirit with huge tree-like body would have protected her, making her invisible and giving her the supernatural ability to move through the forest without making a sound, to know what was happening a mile away, and to see in complete darkness, as well as normal people could see in daylight. These were the kind of legends that circulated about her. She was Lady Death the same Lyudmila Pavlichenko, who is the subject of today's episode. In some ways, it's not strange. The legends 
always seem to grow around snipers. You know, their ability to lay perfectly still and deliver death from afar without being seen may appear almost magical and absolutely terrifying to those on the other side of their scopes. The fact that in this particular case, the deliverer of death, or to put it in Frank Frazetta's terms, the death dealer, was a woman, only added to the mystique surrounding her figure. Before the war was over, her brand of ballistic deadly magic made her an icon. Not just within the Soviet Union, but internationally as well. Woody Guthrie, one of the giants of American folk music, dedicated to her a song that contained the lyrics Miss Pavlichenko's well-known to fame, Russia's your country, fighting is your game. Your smile shines as bright as any new morning sun, but more than 300 Nazi dogs fell by your gun. Considering that on uh, Uri Gatry's guitar was written the slogan This machine kills fascists, you can see why he would be into her. Similarly, one of the most successful actors of the early 20th century, Charlie Chaplin, would invite her to a screening of his film The Great Dictator, and at the end of the evening Chaplin would get on his knees in front of her announcing to everyone present he would kiss her fingers 309 times, once for every Nazi she had killed, saying, It's just incredible that this little hand has killed Nazis, has shited them down by the hundred without missing a close range. Now, I couldn't find sources confirming what happened next, but I kind of hope he didn't literally kiss her hand 309 times, because when you think about how long that would take, you quickly realize that that's something that's much cooler to say than to actually do it. To actually do it would be probably a little creepy, but so in any case, it sounds cool as a story. I don't know what happened next, but in any case. Before we get too carried away with the impact that Ludmilla would eventually have, let's go back to the beginning of our story. So it's probably safe to say that when Lyudmila popped out of her mom on July 12, 1916, her parents saw a cute baby girl, not a prolific Nazi killer in the making. Little did I know. Lyudmila was born in what's now part of Ukraine, in a large city about 50 miles south of Kiev, at a time when the Russian Empire was about to tap out of World War I only to crumble during the subsequent civil war. So pretty much her entire life was lived under a communist regime in the Soviet Union. Her own father, Mikhail Ivanovich Beloy, was a member of the People Commissariat for Internal Affairs, which was an organization that would gain an unsavory reputation for becoming Stalin's muscle in the years to come. Lyudmila's mother, on the other hand, Elena Trofimovna Belova, served as a nice counterbalance to Mikhail's stern nature, so they had a relatively stable home. Lyudmila describes her childhood as being full of literature, thanks to her mom, you know, who made her read everyone from Tolstoy to Gogol to Pushkin. 
As a kid, Lyudmila loved to be adventurous. She loved to take boat trips on the river with her young friends, playing pretend war games. And in a foreshadowing of things to come, she would take a leading role in a gang of teenage boys since she could outdo them on pretty, in pretty much any physical activity. And their personality was such that she got into her share of fistfights while still extremely young. By the time she was 15, she was pregnant with her son, Rostislav. And the following year, she was married to the baby's father, Alexei Pavlichenko. From Alexei, Lyudmila would keep the son and the last name. Other than that, there really wasn't much that she wanted to remember about her brief marriage, which quickly ended in divorce. You know, details about what happened between the two of them are very few, but it's pretty clear that she wasn't a big fan of Alexei, considering that she would later describe her son as, I quote, fortunately, not at all like his father. Which says a lot right there. Having a kid, dealing with domestic drama and divorcing while still a teenager didn't stop Lyudmila from beginning to work in a factory, entering the University of Kiev to study history, and joining a shooting club. From day one, you know, from the day she picked up her first gun, it became clear that she possessed the one thing that can never be taught, and that's natural talent. You know, with her very first three shots, she had made a cluster around the center of the target she had been given. Now, of course, anyone who puts in the hours and the focus into any activity, you know, given enough practice, can become good at whatever they set their mind to. But, you know, I could still spend eight hours a day, every day for the rest of my life, shooting hoops, and I would still never play half as well as Michael Jordan. Because while hard work matters a whole lot, it's talent if united with discipline and hard work, that's what separates good from truly great. And as unfair as that may sound, some people have it and some people don't. Lyudmila, when it came to shooting guns, was one of those people who was a natural when she had a gun in her hands. As she wrote, in their own way, firearms are beautiful. They are pleasant to pick up and convenient to use. They earn the love of the people who took them into wars of unbelievable ferocity. So she was a gun nut from right away. You know, she started shooting, she loved it, she would spend a lot of time doing that. After her initial display of talent, Lyudmila began attending every shooting class and learning how to operate various rifles including the kind with which she would make most of her kills during the war, which was a bolt-action rifle produced in 1891, which she claimed she could disassemble and reassemble with her eyes closed, despite the fact that it had seven separate parts that made up the bolt alone. She would receive a whole bunch of certificates for taking part and doing extremely well in competitions, and would spend the next several years working in the factory, eventually becoming the head of her group, again showing us her knack for leadership. She also kept attending Kiev University, studying history, which 
had apparently become a rather passion next to firearms. The news, you know, she was, she was living at a time when, of course, the flow of information was nowhere near what it is today. You know, clearly today we have access to so much more information that somebody living when she did would have. However, it's not that she lived uh, 500 years ago. So news of fascist atrocities committed during the Spanish Civil War that was happening at that time enraged her. But still, Spain was far away. So for the time being, she kept shooting at targets and imagining a future as a historian. She was not seeing war in, in her immediate future. Her passion for guns led to her deciding it was time to enroll in a sniper school that had recently opened its doors in Kiev. So she met all the certification requirements and was given references from both the Kiev University and the Arsenal factory where she worked. And so she was allowed to begin sessions twice a week. In her memoir, Lyudmila described the curriculum of the sniper school as being 20 hours devoted to politics classes, 14 hours to parade ground drills, 220 hours to firearms training, 60 hours to tactics, 30 hours to military engineering, and 20 hours to hand-to-hand fighting. Tests on the course content took up 16 hours. So the training she went through was a relatively intense, and she quickly learned that as her instructor said, a good marksman is still not a sniper. So she would have to learn a lot if she wanted to graduate from this. She had to learn everything about long-distance shooting, including the most important scientific part, ballistics. You know, she learned how she needed to calculate the range according to angles and make distance estimations. She also learned about lateral drift, the shifting angle from muzzle to target that occurs due to things like wind resistance. She learned about camouflage, about to use uh, pieces of cloth, twigs, grass and leaves to conceal ourselves. She learned, of course, how not to make too much, how to take too much time to aim at her target, since that was the one common way a sniper could give away their position. And most importantly, she learned how to develop the character of being a sniper. She learned that, as she put it, I quote, a sniper needed a special character, calm, balanced, even phlegmatic, and not subject to fits of anger, merriment, despair, or even worse, hysteria. A sniper is a patient hunter. He takes just a single shot. If he misses, he can pay for it with his life. Oddly enough, Lyudmila wasn't alone as a lady in the sniper school. There were two other ladies with her. And the three of them performed so well that their instructor became a believer in the notion that women could be better snipers than men. As it turns out, Lyudmila would get a chance to test her instructor's theory sooner than expected. In 1941, after Ludmilla had passed her fourth-year college exam and was given a job working in the Odessa Public Library, the Nazis were gearing up for Operation Barbarossa. Millions of foreign soldiers were about to pour over the border 
and invade their homeland. War was definitely coming. When Lyudmila heard the news, she was in an open-air veranda of a cafe in Odessa. In one of those weird moments when history seems to stop for a second, neither Lyudmila nor her friends could fully process the information they just heard. So they basically went back to what they were doing, you know, which was namely eating, drinking, and having unrelated conversations. It was just all too much to take in. So for a few hours, most people in town went about their day as if nothing had happened. As she puts it in her memoir, nobody in Odessa thought of cancelling planned visits to the cinema, theatre or concert hall, nor their traditional Sunday stroll along Marine Boulevard to the sound of a brass band. On the contrary, auditoriums were packed, the public were still also keen to get into the circus for an act featuring tame tigers. But a few hours later, reality began to dawn on all of them. In Lyudmila's case, she was at the opera house watching a performance when suddenly the illusion of normalcy faded away and finding themselves unable to enjoy the performance, she and her friends left the theater during the intermission. Without any further ado, Lyudmila walked into the closest recruitment center and decided to sign up for the army. The officer there thought she was applying for medical duty as a nurse, like most women were doing, and so told her to head to a different office. But with her sniper certification in hand, Lyudmila eventually cleared the confusion, and within just two days after the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, she was boarding a train where, to a destination where she would join the division that would remain her division for the rest of the war was given all the gear that she would need to make use on the front and took the Red Army Oath of Service. Now, despite the theoretical equality of genders under communist doctrine, the reality, of course, was a bit more complicated. Over and over she was told the army was not for her and that she should enlist as a nurse instead. But refusing to take no for an answer, Lyudmila was eventually able to get her spot in the front lines. On her way there, she saw plenty of horrific scenes that made her blood boil. Homes destroyed by Nazi bombings, people grievously wounded, corpses. By August 8, 1941, Lyudmila would take the first steps to transform into Lady Death. Lyudmila was called up by a captain who showed her a large house that they had determined was the staff headquarters for some occupying Axis forces in the area. So he asked her, can you reach it? And uh, in an answer that would have clearly disappointed Master Yoda, she replied, I will try. Now, the release of The Empire Strikes Back was several decades into the future, so Lyudmila did not here in her head, Yoda's words that inevitably pop in my mind anytime someone says they will try. Because as Yoda famously put it, do or do not, there is no try. 
unaware of such profound wisdom, Ludmilla did try. She made her way to a nearby part of the bombed-out house, and uh, that gave her a good view of the house itself and the officers out on the porch. She did some quick calculations to account for the 400-meter distance between the um, broken-up house where she was at and the house that she was aiming at. So resting the rifle on the wall, she took aim at her first target, which was an officer standing by the porch, and she missed. She fired just a fraction of a second later, and she missed again. And then the third shot connected, killing the first officer instantly. And the second officer barely had time to react before she had taken his head off as well. Well, not literally off, but you know what I mean. As far as Lyudmila was concerned, she had failed. You know, one shot, one kill after all, and that was not what happened. She would get better, though. You know, Odessa would, uh, would come under siege the same day as her sniping debut, and the Soviet Red Army would begin taking a more defensive position in and around the city. During the coming months, Lyudmila would make several more kills. In her memoirs, recalling the early days of the siege, she mostly just focused on the coping strategies used by her company, like singing songs or telling funny stories. As she explained, before an attack, you never feel particularly well. There is a sort of vacuum in your head. Your mood deteriorates. It is an oppressive and unpleasant sensation. In our company, we fought against this. We would relate every possible amusing tale, recall successful combat episodes, and not allow people to give in to anxiety. And in a more aggressive passage, she adds, charging together, we would dash into battle and forget about everything else in the world. Hatred of the enemy overcame other human feelings, and the Romanians fled before us like hares. This reference to the Romanians is because the first enemies she faced, in fact, were primarily Romanians allied with the Germans. Her military career, however, almost came to a premature end by August 19, 1941, when a mortar shell exploded in Lyudmila's trench, throwing her backward and burying her in dirt. She was rescued by her comrades, but the rifle that had been serving her well during the previous weeks had been blown apart. During her recovery period, we can get a good idea of how she took this injury, not as an excuse to mope, but as a motivator. In a letter she wrote to her sister Valentina, she said, Unless I am killed, I plan to make it to Berlin, give the Germans a thrashing, and return to Kiev. My calculation is simple, 1,000 Germans, and then I can hold my head up with pride. It could be said that I have set my targets and will not retreat any further. In a word, I am not bored. It is a merry life. Yeah, World War II, a merry life. We can definitely say she was wired differently from most people. By the time she was able to return to duty, she was promoted to corporal and received a new rifle. 
the high command in Odessa decided that heavily relying on snipers in the defense of the city was the way to go. Since they realized that sniping higher-ranking enemy officers was a good way to demoralize the troops. Snipers were also quite effective in taking out machine gun nests, thereby making frontal assaults a whole lot easier. So this was the go-ahead for Lyudmila to go out hunting, as snipers called it, in the no-man's land, anywhere from 400 to 600 meters away from most of her targets. On one occasion, she and her sniping partner, um, a guy whose name I'm going to attempt to pronounce, but I make, I offer no guarantee that he's going to be anywhere close to his actual name. I'm going to guess Piotr Kolokot... Okay, forget it. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Piotr Kolokoitsev. Okay, forget it. Well, the two of them set up a pincer position in a thicket overlooking a Romanian field kitchen and basically caught 28 soldiers in a deadly crossfire. When dust settled and the Romanians finally began firing mortars and machine guns into the thicket, Lyudmila had killed 16 of the soldiers, firing only 17 shots. Considering that her debut had been 244, 16 for 17 was about as good an improvement as you could possibly hope. And not content to just rest on her laurels, Ludmilla and her partner returned to their spot the next day, which is not necessarily a great move for snipers, but it worked out for them and Ludmilla added another 10 kills to her tally, including two officers this time. In another instance, Columns of Romanian troops started advancing on Lyudmila's battalion outside Odessa. These troops, as it turned out, were all monstrously drunk, making them easy targets for the artillery. But after the initial defensive bombardment from the Russians, they seemed to pull themselves together and, you know, just move more effectively, basically. However, their moving more effectively led them to wander directly into Lyudmila's field of fire from her position in her trench, which would prove deadly for a whole lot of them. So I'm going to turn to her description of the events. For this shot, the trajectory of the bullet didn't rise above the target for the entire distance of the shot. For instance, as in the given situation, by using a setting of six, and aiming at the heels of the marching enemy soldiers, it was possible to fire several shots without resetting the telescope sight. The enemy would be hit first in the leg, then on coming closer in the stomach, and closer still at 300 meters in the chest, and finally in the head. Then as they approached still closer to the sniper, the order would be reversed. Chest, stomach, leg. When the battle was over, 300 Romanians were dead, 19 of which had been felled by Lyudmila's rifle, 8 of them being officers. And these led to Lyudmila's being promoted to the rank of sergeant. One last story from the Odessa operation that's worth mentioning is when Lyudmila took a page from some ill-advised information provided to her by a Soviet handbook about the Winter War, which made the dubious claim that Finnish snipers, guys like 
Simo Haya, you know, the greatest sniper ever, but they would climb up into trees to pick off their Soviet enemies. So she figured if they did it, I can try too. She went to a nearby cemetery where a Romanian machine gun pillbox had been set up and climbed up into a maple tree armed with both regular and armor-piercing bullets with her intent was of taking out the gunners and the machine. She figured she was about 200 meters away from her targets. Uh, four of them specifically. One of them was an officer, two were machine gunners, and of course there was the machine gun itself. And so she plugged every single one of them. You know, so far so good. The problem was that as the remaining soldier around the pillbox figured out where she was, you know, up in a cluster of five maple trees on the hill in the cemetery, they started dropping mortar shells left and right all around her. And the flying splinters and hot metal forced Ludmilla to jump from her hiding spot, which was a nine-foot drop, that resulted in her landing hip-first on a gravestone which made her, you know, of course she got injured and she couldn't really move well until some of her comrades came and rescued her. In her memoir, while explaining why she had made a bad call in terms of selecting a sniping position, Ludmilla basically refused to believe that the information in her Winter War handbook may have just been bad. And she would say that, you know, a clamp of five trees was not the equivalent of uh, the age-old Finnish forest, in which it was difficult to pick anything out among the shapes of the giant pines. Yeah, maybe, but not really, because the problem was that the Finns never, or at least rarely, saw hiding in trees as a viable place to snipe during the Winter War. This was just a rumor that had spread among Soviet troops who served in the hellish conditions of the Winter War. In fact, when asked by his biographer if he had ever engaged in sniping in the trees, the great Simo Haya just looked at him like somebody would ask a really dumb question. Unfortunately, no one had ever given Ludmilla the memo that tree sniping wasn't the best idea. So her injury put her out of commission again for a little while. But still, despite that, she had managed to knock a Romanian major out of commission and one was an assistant to the Romanian dictator Antonescu himself. And his lane allowed the Soviets to secure important documents found on his body. By the time Lyudmila's battalion returned to Odessa, her tally was over 100 enemy soldiers killed. While on the outskirts of town, she met a major general who, impressed with her accomplishments, presented her with her second rifle, an SVT-40 with telescopic sight. Engraved on its side was a line saying, For the first hundred, to Junior Sergeant Pavlichenko, from the commander of the 25th Division, Major General Petrov. As it turns out, Major General Petrov had served with Ludmila's father, Mikhail, during the Russian Civil War. And so this led them to have a warmer relationship than it was customary between most Soviet soldiers and their superior, occasionally having conversation, sharing tea, you know, stuff like that. Her success on the field of battle led Ludmila quickly being promoted to full sergeant and being tasked with training under snipers. 
not all that surprisingly. She ran into her fair share of prejudice, since some of her new subordinates came from small towns and villages and were not used to seeing women outside of the home, definitely not in a position of power. But here is the thing, the beauty of measurable objective skills is that they can be tested. And the simple fact was that Lyudmila shot much better than any of them and had more war experience. So once their culture shock subsided, her subordinates began changing their attitudes toward her and grew to respect her as a leader. And this turned out to be good for everybody, since once they were well trained, the new snipers helped make her battalion much more deadly. Less pleasant for Ludmilla was the fact that she was injured again during a mortar attack in which she was hit in the face with a large splinter of exploding artillery. As she tells the story, everything around me began to sink into a fog. I pressed my rifle to my breast and leaned my back against the trench wall. Splinters of mortars and enemy bullets were whistling over it. Somewhere to the side, one of the company's fixed machine guns had started rattling, and their battery of 45mm cannon entered the fray. Judging by the sounds, the Romanians had gone on the attack, but I could no longer contribute to repelling them. So this one was a bad injury, and it required an operation to remove the matchstick-sized piece of mortar metal from her head. So by now she had narrowly escaped death for a third time in a relatively short period, you know, just a few weeks. And adding insult to injury, which in this case, very literally injury, the Red Army was defeated in Odessa and had to retreat across the sea to Sevastopol. By this point, Ludmilla had racked up over half of her ultimate tally. She had killed 187 enemy soldiers. Incidental, even though I'm trying to stick primarily to Ludmilla's story and not get lost in the larger context, it's worth mentioning that the German and Romanian forces occupying Odessa murdered tens of thousands of Jews right after taking control of the city at this time. So on to the next battle, and in this case this was the siege of Sevastopol, which it was clearly no Stalingrad, but it was still a colossal battle that lasted from late 1941 into mid-1942, and would result in yet another German victory. Despite this outcome, it was here that the legend of Lady Death finally began to reach further than the confines of Ludmilla's battalion. Ludmilla would become particularly famous for taking part in a number of sniper duels. And most of these were during the lulls of the fighting between the first and second German assaults on the city, you know, during the relative calm of December 1941. These lulls in the battle were, as Ludmilla points out in her memoir, when snipers made the most use of their ability to explore the territory, observe and specifically target and take out enemy officers, demoralizing the enemy before the next round of brutal fighting would begin. One of her most memorable duels was a long and brutal one 
as uh, at a gully bridge where she posted up for three days searching for a Nazi sniper who had been harassing her fellow soldiers. So she got in position and studying the bridge she was able to figure out where the Nazi sniper had likely posted up. A place on the destroyed bridge that she called the sniper's dream and so she decided to wait for him. And that's the part of sniping against snipers that you don't really get to see play out too effectively in films. Even though Enemy at the Gates actually does a pretty good job at it. The whole job requires monumental patience and observational skill and resilience to nasty elements like the Crimean winter elements that Lyudmila was facing. For 48 hours, despite nearly freezing, Lyudmila hardly moved a muscle. She just waited and waited and waited, ignoring hunger, tiredness and cold. She did little other than just watch the bridge for any sign of activity for 48 hours. And nothing really happened until something did. You know, after about two days, the German sniper appeared and took up position during the third night. Lyudmila and her now frequent sniping partner, Fyodor, had set up a few wooden straw decoys, and so shortly after arriving, the German sniper took the bait and revealed himself by firing on one of them, because he thought they were actual Russian troops, and uh, that was a mistake that cost his life, because without missing a beat, Lyudmila just put one bit in, between his eyes, and his body fell 15 feet from the bridge into the gully. She actually made several kills like this during her time in uh, Sevastopol. On another occasion, she received the help of a local man, an old ranger, as she calls him, uh, who guided Lundmila and her squad to various sectors where the Germans had set up communication centers. And Lundmila gave him a gun and he helped out in knocking out one of these communication centers and the officers in there. Which was sweet for him because sweet revenge since the Germans had massacred his family and they were now using his house as the communication center. So he was quite happy with Lyudmila's assistance in that department. But the siege of Sevastopol was even more noteworthy in the tale of Lady Death for very different reasons. Because somehow in the midst of all the killings and carnage and all the other stuff, Ludmilla managed to meet the love of her life, a junior lieutenant by the name of Alexei Kitsenko. Ludmilla was sitting on a fallen tree smoking a pipe, and Alexei showed up and supposedly said, this is the first time I've seen a girl with a pipe. So they started chatting a little bit and Alexei is supposed to have said, it's funny, good looking women don't usually smoke pipes. Which, to which Ludmilla re responded. So in other words, you're saying I must be either ugly and unusual, right? And Alexei then reassured her that what made her unusual and known throughout the 54th Regiment, where they were both serving, was 
or skills with a rifle, nothing to do with pipes. And he then added, but the question of female looks is a quite a complex one. Our ideal is dictated by time, fashion and custom. For example, I consider you good looking. Now in my time, I've heard way better lines than this. And this clearly does not rank in the top 10 of flirting smoothness in human history. But considering they were both engaging in death fights with Nazis on a daily basis, I think we can cut them some slack. In any case, Alexei was older than her, by 11 years. Just like Ludmilla, he had been married and had a nasty divorce. According to her description, he could be both kind and strong, and so she found herself wanting to spend more time around him. But Romance had to wait because first Ludmilla had to take out a mobile machine gun nest. You know, the kind of stuff that always happens in all romantic comedies, right? Sorry, honey, I have to postpone our date because I have to go kill a few Nazis first. So planted firmly within her trench, she did the calculations at record speed. You know, there was a moving armored transport 200 meters away, an angle of 35 degrees, her bullet reaching the target in a quarter of a second. But she, made, she did the shot, was a good one, and it signaled all the other sharpshooters with her to all fire at once taking out the armor transport by firing through the eye slots on the vehicle. Unfortunately, the Germans watching from the command post further away guess what had happened and immediately began bombarding Lyudmila's position with mortar fire. She almost managed to roll away, but a heavy shell landed nearby. And as Lyudmila puts it in a recollection of the event, it felt as if the burning paw of a huge beast had prodded me in the shoulder. A sharp pain penetrated my right shoulder blade, and then everything went black. So the next thing she remembers is regaining consciousness several hours later, cold and pinned to the ground by a fell tree, while getting a large splinter impaled through her back. She began hallucinating, she was having visions and during this during this time. But you know, her first clear memory that was not an hallucination was Alexei leaning over her, begging her, using her nickname, saying, Lucy, don't die. Lucy, I beg you, Lucy, please. So with the help of other soldiers, Alexei brought her to the medical battalion unit where she joined some 3,000 other Soviet troops who had been injured during the second assault. Due to her massive blood loss, Ludmilla's doctor decided that she should be shipped back to unoccupied territory to recover. However, according to Ludmilla, Alexei not only offered his own blood as a donor, along with the blood of basically anybody else in the battalion was compatible, but also managed to persuade the doctor not to have Ludmilla ship back. Whether this was due to simple selfishness for the sake of staying close to her, or fate that she could recover and continue making quick work on the invading Nazis is anybody's guess. Either way, 
the doctor allowed her to recover for nearly three weeks in the hospital, where Alexei would continue to visit her as often as his duties would allow him. During these visits, he would bring her souvenirs from the front, like Belgian chocolate taken from a slain German, which again is, is so weird, you know, because you know, how romantic. Here is some chocolate for you. I, I literally had to kill a guy to get you this gift. Must be odd. Got her some perfume called Red Moscow, uh, a package of lace handkerchiefs. You know, weird, cutesy thing in the middle of carnage. What Lyudmila seemed to appreciate most was the constant updates that Alexei would give her about what was happening with the battalion. It's clear from how she described this time and the ink she spills describing this operation that all she wanted was to get back to the front. But she also speaks of Alexei as fondly as one tends to when they are falling in love. She even wrote of Warren that she had nothing interesting to tell Alexei. But apparently he didn't care. He thought that her takedown of the machine gun transport that led to her injury was heroic enough for a while. My favorite part was when she recalled how he rescued her, begging her not to die, and it caused the tears to well up in her eyes, though, and as she say, I am far from a sentimental person. But, you know, despite that, she was getting all uh, mushy and soft, uh, at least when it comes when it came to him. I don't think there's any way to describe what happens next other than to simply give the reins to Ludmilla herself. Um, so let's hear what she had to say. Speaking of Alexei, uh, she says that, that as soon as she was um, allowed to leave this impromptu hospital, I quote from her writing, he had decorated the dugout on a table knocked together from freshly planed planks and covered with a canvas tablecloth, he had placed a 45mm shelf case holding a winter bouquet of green juniper shoots, maple twigs with red and yellow leaves, which had miraculously been preserved. In the cellar-like premises illuminated by the dim light of a battery-powered lamp, they glowed like two torch beams. There was even a dinner service. Tin plates with thinly sliced black bread and salami, an open can of meat stew, boiled potatoes in a mess tin, and a flask of vodka. Today is a special day, Lucy, he said very solemnly, and leaning over towards the vase, he tore off one palm-shaped leaf and handed it to me. A small souvenir for you, my one and only. Now I'm offering you my hand and my heart. And Ludmilla continues, I replied by accepting. Ludmilla tells that the proposal and the relationship both happened really quickly. But that because they were at war, you know, in case uh, the romantic dinner made of wartime rations and the vase made of a shell casing wasn't clue enough, she felt that there was no time to think or worry about it. As she says in her memoir, today we were alive, but tomorrow, what would happen tomorrow, nobody knew. And this musing about the impermanence of life 
of course always applies to everyone, but it applies, you know, it's much more fitting considering that they were getting shot at by Nazis on a daily basis. Because they were in the military, all they had to do to formalize their marriage was to get some signatures, which they did in short order, and they quote-unquote moved in together in January of 1942, into his commander's dugout, which she described as having little resemblance to a cozy family nest. But she also said that they were happy, even with the explosions everywhere around them, which she calls them the concert of German classical music and the constant threat of German attacks. So she expresses gratitude that even though they were at war, he always tried to keep her as safe as he could, but he never stopped her from carrying out her duties. So to cap off how she felt about everything, she wrote, With him, I felt for the first time the meaning of love, all-consuming love, and I was completely happy during those days. But as Lyudmila was already aware of, happiness can be a fleeting thing. A few months after their impromptu marriage, Lyudmila and Alexei were out having breakfast in the open air of the land surrounding Sevastopol. And according to Lyudmila, they were sitting on a fallen tree, joking about something funny that happened during Alexei's childhood. There was a chirping of sparrows in the nearby trees, and suddenly they went completely silent because the distant rumble of a German cannon scared them. Ludmilla remembers Alexei asking, You're not tired, are you? Right before the third round of artillery fired by the Germans exploded directly behind them. So here is how she described what happened next. Dozens of splinters whistled through the air. Alexei shielded me from them, but did not escape wounds himself. In the first minute I did not think it was serious. Alexei clutched his right shoulder and groaned, but then the blood streamed profusely down the sleeve of his tunic. His arm hung limp, and the pallor began to cover his face. Ludmilla frantically bandaged him, shouting for a medic until their comrades came to their aid and brought them to the medical station where he was attended by, by the doctor there. So she sat down and waited just, you know, as the doctor was working on Alexei, thinking of their time together, their courtship, and how, I quote, he had remained cheerful in difficult circumstances, did not despair at failure, and did not let success go to his head. She also marveled at his ability to, I quote, find the right words for the occasion, and how she trusted him more than she trusted herself. And as she was waiting and waiting, you know, not too many ways to dilly dally around, he just died on her. The dog came out of the tent and told her that his right arm had to be amputated since it had been only hanging on by a single tendon. And he also told her that he had seven shrapnel splinters embedded in his back, only three of which he was able to remove. Before the dog could go on, Ludmilla passed out. 
By the time she woke up in a hospital bed, all she wanted was her gun. The doc and the nurses denied her request, fearing that she wanted to kill herself in grief. But that's not why she wanted the gun. People grieve in different ways. Ludmilla's way was not self-harm. Ludmilla's way was to drown her pain in the blood of her enemies. Having a loved one die in your arms does sinks to the psyche of a human being. I speak from experience in that regard. But having a loved one die in your arms, not because of an accident, not because of some unfortunate fate, but because another human being took them from you, because they killed them right in front of you, well, that takes things to a whole other level and inevitably leads to a very dark place. Alexei's funeral took place on March 5th, 1942. The second it was over, Ludmilla turned to the task at hand, which was exacting bloody, brutal revenge. She had already killed 257 Axis soldiers. This made her the soldier with the highest kill count in that part of the front. And she was now about to add a few more. Beginning on March 31st, she took part in sniping operation that killed 32 German soldiers and officers that day. On April 3rd, 18 more. On April 8, 66. On April 9, 56. On April 10, 108. During the month of April alone, Ludmilla and her fellow snipers took out nearly 1,500 Nazis, and in the first 10 days of May, another thousand. Bloody revenge indeed. Despite continuing to kill with the same effectiveness she had always displayed, Ludmilla had changed. She was no longer a cold, calculating sniper. Unrelenting hatred drove her all through the third siege of Sevastopol that began in early June of 1942. In the past, she had been satisfied with shooting her targets in the head or chest, which would grant them, in either case, a quick death. But a quick death would not placate her demons. When the 50th and the 132nd German Division infantries were sent forward during the third siege, Ludmilla and her longtime sniping partner Fyodor returned to the gully where they had had the duel with the German sniper so many months before. Taking up position, Ludmilla suggested a different tactic. No longer would they aim for the head or the chest of their targets, but they would put bullets through their stomachs. What was the difference? Well, Stomach shots, particularly those from high-powered rifles like the ones they were using, would give their enemies ugly, horrendously painful deaths. You know, the bullet tends to rip all the way through the stomach cavity, its shock waves both damaging the other organs like the liver and kidneys, as well as causing stomach acid and bile to seep into the body and causing unbearable pain. It's a slow, awful way to die. To make things even better from Ludmilla's viewpoint, those shots, you know, the ones who would be shot by her, would have time to cry out to their friends 
would then try to drag them from the field, giving her a chance to kill them too. So in her blinding, inconsolable rage, these had become Ludmilla's ammo. As she says in her memoirs, after taking several shots, we saw what their effect was. Writing in pain, the Nazis fell to the ground, screaming and groaning, and begged for help. By evening, the Nazis had abandoned the battlefield in our sector, and we counted up those who still lay there with the aluminum buckles on their belts shot through. There were over 20 of them. Now, the tricky thing is these men had not been personally involved with killing her husband. Maybe some of them were good people, would have uh, rather stayed home with their families. Maybe some of them had been forcibly conscripted and sent far away from home in a war that they didn't believe in. But none of that mattered to Ludmilla. If you wore a Nazi uniform, if you were marching into Soviet territory, you were an enemy. Simple as that. And Ludmilla knew only one way to deal with enemies. But no matter how many enemies were brought down by Ludmilla's bullets, there were just too many. And defending the city was getting a more desperate proposition by the minute. So Ludmilla herself was on the receiving end of yet another wound. There was a lot of smoke crashing and banging and whistling shell splinters. Captain Betzrodny was killed on the spot by a head wound. However, I was lucky. A splinter left a deep gash in my right cheek, tore off the lobe of my right ear, and as well as that there was damage to my eardrum from the shock wave and general shell shock. So, yet again, Ludmilla was off to see the same doctor who had already tended to her wounds time and time again. But this time he would not listen to any pleading. You know, Ludmilla was to be evacuated off the front lines. Her Nazi killing career was about to come to an end. Her tally was 309 enemy kills. Sevastopol was in the end a major defeat, numerically and strategically, while the Axis forces of Nazis and Romanians are recorded to have lost some 35,000 plus people in the eight months of fighting. The Soviets are estimated to have lost about 200,000. And while the Soviet propaganda machine did its best to soften the blow, there's no way to see this as other than an unmitigated disaster. The 25th Chepayev Rifle Division no longer existed, with most of its members dying during the third assault. Lyudmila had a hard time processing this reality. She wanted to return to the front upon hearing the news of her division destruction to continue her quest for vengeance, but it had become impossible. Um, not even because of her injury, you know, her injury was actually less serious than some of her other injury, but because she was being requested somewhere else. And the person doing the requesting was the one person in the Soviet Union you could not say no to. That would be Mr. Josef Stalin. Ludmila was promoted to junior lieutenant shortly after arriving, and uh, after recovering from her injuries on July 16, 1942, she received the prestigious Order of Lenin for her accomplishments. 
but she was quickly shuttled to the capital, which was technically still under siege by the Nazis, but was holding out very effectively by then. She met several more higher-rank members of the military and of the party itself, as well as the writer and propagandist Lavrenyov, who penned a pamphlet that was sent through the Red Army, bearing her picture, you know, the one we referenced at the beginning of the episode. The pamphlet itself spends most of its time describing her beauty, which is kind of fitting since the author saw it fit to unsuccessfully court Lyudmila while she was in Moscow. But it also states something very true about Lady Death. It says, It was a face that bespoke noble human integrity, a character capable only of direct action, unwilling to brook any compromises or entertain bargains. This is probably why Joseph Stalin liked her so much, and also why he recommended her to the United United States ambassador to the Soviet Union to be in the small delegation of Soviet troops that would be represented in the International Student Assembly in Washington, that feature people from every allied nation. Lyudmila would be joined by another accomplished sniper, a male sniper, who had killed a hundred Nazis on the Leningrad front. And at Stalin's request, her job description was about to change, from Nazi killer to PR person. And Lyudmila, you know, what else could she do? She had to obey. So she, she saw her visit to the United States as a learning opportunity for Americans and as a way to kind of help them understand how brutal and important the fighting was on the Eastern Front. Before leaving the Soviet Union on her trip to the US, Lyudmila ended up face to face with Stalin. And considering that any time Stalin paid attention to someone, it was pretty much a coin toss to see if he would end up in a gulag or shot as a counter-revolutionary. The meeting could have intimidated a normal person. But, you know, Lyudmila had not spent a year killing Nazis to be intimidated by just about anyone. So for his part, Stalin was actually on his best behavior and even gave her a Russian-English dictionary signed by his own hand. And with that, Lyudmila was off to America. The year was 1942. From the second she landed in the States, the American press couldn't get enough of her. There was simply no American equivalent to the Soviet slayer of Nazis, so the fascination for her was never-ending. One of the newspapers described her as 26-year-old Lieutenant Lyudmila Pavlichenko, a bewitching warrior princess who has the highest individual score among them on the best snipers of the Red Army. It's kind of funny how, even down to this day, this wasn't just back then, even down to these days, any discussion about a woman, regardless of which field she's in, sooner or later will turn to the subject of her looks. And the American press in the 1940s was definitely not going to be the exception to this rule. The fact that many considered Ludmilla quite beautiful added to the fascination with her story. And, as weird as it may sound, a pretty sniper attracted more attention than an ugly one. 
So accordingly, the press would regularly ask her questions that could be perceived as weird, if not downright insulting. A journalist once asked her, do girls wear lipstick at the front line, and what color do they prefer? Which left Ludmilla puzzle. You know, she hadn't killed over 300 Nazis to come discuss the color of lipstick with American journalists. So she replied, who would think of powdering their nose in a war? Or when another reporter somehow thought it would be a good idea to ask, what underwear does Lady Pavlichenko prefer and what color does she like? To which Lyudmila responded with, in Russia you would get a slap in the face for asking a question like that. That kind of question is usually asked of a wife or a mistress. You and I do not have that relationship. So come a little bit closer. One of the coolest responses she gave to a reporter, though, was when a female journalist asked her, Lyudmila, can you take hot baths at the front? And without missing a beat, she replied, absolutely, several times a day. If you're sitting in a trench and there is an artillery attack, it gets very hot. Um, that's a real bath, only tends to be a dust bath. At one point during the tour, she was asked what's possibly the most emblematic question of her life and, and she gave an iconic answer. When asked by a reporter in Chicago why a girl, especially a girl as attractive and well-spoken as her, would choose such a base profession as shooting off Nazis' heads from afar, Ludmilla simply scowled at the journalist and at the entire crowd gathered there and, and said what are probably her most famous words that have been repeated time and time again and she's been quoted with this. The words were, gentlemen, I'm 25 years old, and I've already managed to kill 309 of the fascist invaders. Do you not think, gentlemen, they have been hiding behind my back for rather too long? So that's... That was her vibe, you know. She, she clearly wasn't pulling punches, even in interviews. Another weird one, when a reporter told her that the Philip Morris Tobacco Company wanted to offer her half a million dollar modeling contract to use her image on their cigarette packs, she didn't waste much time agonizing over the decision. She just replied with a simple, they can go to hell. But other than her testy relationship with the press, the most interesting aspect of her visit was the relationship she built with the first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. The two of them, in fact, would get along famously. On one occasion, Eleanor invited Ludmilla for a drive. And by the end of the drive, the woman who had eliminated machine gun nests and rival snipers was actually mildly scared of the First Lady. As Ludmilla wrote, though she was a 52-year-old woman, Eleanor drove the car like a true speedster. In an instant, we broke away from the security patrol accompanying the Cadillac and tore through the Washington streets like a tornado. At corners, Mrs. Roosevelt would sharply reduce the engine revs and it, as it roared like a beast. I had not expected anything like this, and I would alternately grasp the door handle in fright and squeeze myself back into the soft seat beside Eleanor. She gave me knowing looks, but didn't reduce her speed. 
and I did not ask her to drive more slowly. After that, they kept in touch a lot, with Eleanor making sure to speak English slowly so that Ludmilla could understand. And while Eleanor was an aristocrat, someone that Ludmilla was essentially trained to hate in her communist upbringing, the first lady had clearly charmed her. And there's, there's actually a funny story where they were driving together through the state of Michigan, making various appearances, and Lyudmila could no longer keep her eyes open, and she just leaned her head against Eleanor's shoulders and took a nap. There's also a funny story of once when uh, she was uh, visiting Hyde Park, the hometown of the Roosevelt family, where she met the president himself, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And she went out for a canoe ride on the lake, as she was paddling, the canoe capsized, throwing her over Soviet uniform and all into the cold water. She got out, so she had to change in, you know, she kind of, I mean, she had been through much worse, so she thought it was funny, nothing to worry about. But Eleanor insisted in giving her clothes and having her change and do all this and that. And there was a moment where... Um, the president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was kind of walked in on Ludmilla changing and she was just, uh, and she said, I had already put the pyjama top on. However, on seeing the United States president, I leapt to my feet in surprise and holding the towel around my hips, blurted out, I beg your pardon, Mr. President. And he burst out laughing. In his view, it was a very amusing scene. All in all, Yudmila would travel across much of the country, spending uh, quite a bit of time on the west coast of the US before going to Canada and then making her way to London. She was quite impressed with the British because of how much they had suffered under German bombing and was definitely impressed with Winston Churchill. But she didn't really seem to have fun with anybody until Eleanor Roosevelt showed up again and joined her in the events in London. All in all, they kept their friendship and they kept speaking very fondly of each other in, in the future. And... But in any case, um, there's something else that I want to switch to. Because, um, you know, the visit to the US eventually ended, she made their way back to the Soviet Union, all of that stuff. But there's something that I want to discuss here, at least briefly. Because it's worth mentioning that in recent years, some people have seized on a few inconsistencies in the accounts about her. And this has led to questioning her credentials and even suggested that most of her tale was made up. That maybe Lady Death was more fiction than fact and maybe was a fraud after all. Now, of course, the answer to this particular question is the same as to many others, you know, when we're trying to dig for historical truth. Short version, of course, is that no one can know for sure. But when looking at the claims made against Ludmilla and their accomplishments, as well as the sources that make them, a few patterns emerge. Some of her critics have an obvious gender bias. And in other words, they have an axe to grind against the whole concept of successful female soldiers, so they seem to desperately want the evidence to fit their agenda. Some of the opposition to her happened within her lifetime, since her popularity made some other soldiers jealous, 
in particularly the fact that she repeatedly turned down romantic offers from superior officers, got on the nerves of some of these uh, rebuffed fellows. All in all, it's estimated that over 2,000 female snipers fought for the Soviet Union during World War II, and the majority of them paid with their lives for their service. There are plenty of documented cases of genuine heroes among them. So even if we assume Soviet propaganda may have embellished a bit Ludmilla's story, and that's likely since propaganda always seeks to iron out some kinks in the stories, it makes zero sense to make up her story out of thin air, considering that there were so many others readily available. So long story short, I tend to feel that her story maybe has been embellished a bit, but I would guess for the most part is that on. In any case, once her Nazi killing days were over, Lyudmila received the most prestigious award the Soviet Union could give, which was the Hero of the Soviet Union Medal. She would never see the battlefield again after this, you know. The powers that be instead decided that she had paid her dues and chose to ever focus on training new snipers for the remainder of World War II. And by the time the war ended, Lyudmila returned to Kiev University, completed her degree in history, and began working as a researcher. When Eleanor Roosevelt visited the Soviet Union in 1957, she made sure to ask to see her. And while the government wouldn't allow Eleanor and Ludmilla to be in a room alone together, due to this being the height of the Cold War, at one point when the guard was distracted, Ludmilla grabbed the aging Eleanor by the hand and brought her to another room where they could talk privately. It was clearly an odd friendship, you know. One was the former First Lady of the United States, and the other one had gained her fame as a soldier for the US' biggest rival. But the two ladies genuinely liked each other, and kept corresponding frequently, until Eleanor's death five years later. When looking at Ludmilla's life after the war, there's no denying that their experiences in 1941 and 1942 marked the rest of her days. She very clearly suffered from what today we would recognize as PTSD. And she self-medicated by drinking a whole lot. And their idea of casual conversation was uh, telling her son how she used to hide behind piles of German bodies as cover. Something that understandably horrified him. In some way, this really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, in the span of just a few months, she went through personally taking the life of over 300 people, seeing many friends killed right next to her, witnessing death all around her, being wounded multiple times, and surviving heavy concussions when explosions went off near her. And of course, finding and losing love when her new husband was torn apart by artillery fire while trying to protect her. I mean, if she didn't have any demons going into the war, she clearly had plenty of them when she walked out. Despite all this drama, 
her celebrity status never really faded until she died of a stroke on October 10th, 1974. Shortly after that, a new stamp was commissioned by the Soviet government, featuring her smiling face. Almost a sweet face that could almost make you forget that those features belonged to someone who had planted terror among entire units of battle-hardened Nazi troops and personally eliminated 309 of them. Someone who, for very good reasons, had earned the nickname of Lady Death. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this episode of History on Fire, which I would like to remind you is brought to you by Luminary Media. I truly hope you got to enjoy today's episode. If you guys want to try the Luminary app, you can download it for free, and then you can even try the premium content for free, I believe it's for a month, if you go to luminary.link forward slash history. Again, that's luminary.link forward slash history. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.